Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we're going to be looking primarily at verses 36 through 43, though we'll be looking a little bit before that as well and jumping around a few different places. Matthew chapter 13, and we are in our sixth week discussing our six core beliefs at First Baptist Church. And now these six core beliefs are not uh, all inclusive of what we believe. Instead, we can look at them more like categories to which all of our beliefs fall under. Now, there is actually an 18-article document. If you look on our website or if you ask me in the church office, we can get you a copy of those. Uh, our website at firstbaptistchurchfbcrobinson.com slash beliefs. Now, you can see not only these six core doctrines, but also uh, all 18 articles in detail. So let's just review what our core beliefs are this morning. Uh, We started off by discussing the Bible is the Word of God. That is the foundation where we get everything that we believe. The Bible is actually God's Word. Then we talked about salvation being only through Jesus Christ. It's not found in any other person, any other Savior other than Christ the Lord. Thirdly, we said that God alone is eternally perfect. He is eternal and perfect. Uh, The qualities of God... Fourthly, we said that man is created in God's image. You and I are created special and unique. Fifth, uh, last week we talked about the church and its purpose, that it exists to serve and that each of us are called to serve. And then finally, Jesus Christ will return. And this sixth one is the one that we're actually looking at this morning, the return of Christ. But I want to go ahead and let you know that the return of Christ is far too much to discuss in one sermon. Instead, we're looking at a very specific uh, part of this belief. I want just to make sure you understand what we mean when we say Jesus Christ will return to read from you the summary from our website about this core belief. And so you can read it up on the screen or just uh, follow along with me. And when we say Jesus Christ will return, what we mean is this. God has promised to bring the world to an appropriate end in his own time when Jesus Christ will return personally to earth. So the first aspect is actually Jesus Christ coming back to earth, returning to bring this earth and this age to its appropriate end. Then we believe that everyone who has ever lived will face a judgment based on their righteousness. Part of Jesus returning comes a a judgment, one that determines whether we spend eternity with Christ or eternity without Christ. And that's what the next part really mentions in this core belief. Those who have never personally confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior will be consigned to an eternal punishment and separation from God. While those who faithfully trusted in salvation through Jesus Christ will live eternally and and blissfully in the presence of God. When we talk about Jesus Christ returning, we don't just mean the actual event of him coming back, but what that ushers in. The era and the age that that begins that will last for eternity. And we believe that not only will Jesus Christ return, he will put an end to this earth where we have suffering and hardships, and he will establish his eternal kingdom in heaven. And there are two distinct places where you and I can end up. An eternal blissful state 
that we know as heaven in the presence of God, forever worshiping him. And that doesn't mean, by the way, forever holding hands and singing kumbaya. I don't know how many people have said, are we going to get bored singing carols in heaven? And the answer is, one, what makes you think we're going to be singing choruses over and over and over again? And two, what makes you think heaven is a place you could possibly fathom getting bored? We're going to have eternity to learn more about who God is. He is so vast that in all of eternity, we will never stop learning about who he is. We will never stop enjoying him. Or there is a truth that we find in Scripture that those who have never trusted Christ will not end up in that eternal and blissful presence of God in heaven. There is a real and literal place that Scripture describes as punishment and separation from God. However, we have found that we don't like to think about hell, do we? Pastor, preach a sermon on heaven. That would be wonderful. You know, we, we hear a lot about heaven. We are just talking in our small group this morning about, about funerals and when people pass away. You always hear about seeing this loved one again, which is an appropriate thought at a time like that. But how many times have we been to a funeral and questioned that statement? Will I see them again? Will I go where they're going, whether it's heaven or hell? Do I have a choice in the matter? And do I have an opportunity to, to find salvation? The truth is, we want to talk about heaven, but we have a habit of ignoring hell. We put it aside as if it doesn't exist. Now, I want to go ahead. If you're, we've got a few guests this morning. If you're a guest this morning, know that I'm not a Baptist preacher who likes to sling sweat and pound the pulpit and, and ask for all of your money and preach on sin and hell every week. What I do like to do is share what God's Word says in full. And I hate ignoring anything that Scripture teaches you know, as we study this morning a very niche part of this category of Jesus Christ returning, a very specific aspect of that, as we study hell, let us be very careful not to fall in the danger of casting it aside or ignoring it, pretending like it doesn't exist. But scripture teaches very clearly what hell is so that we can know very clearly the glory of God in his salvation. I agree with C.S. Lewis, and I think many of you will too, when he writes, there is no doctrine, speaking of hell, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. I think I agree with that. Lord, if we could have Christianity without hell, that, that would be great. <laughs> that would be fantastic. If we could have eternal bliss and not have to think about what lies on the other side. We don't have to think about what happens when we don't put our faith and trust in Christ or what happens to friends or loved ones who have not put their faith and trust in Christ. The hardest question I have to ask someone when they come to me for prayer for a dying loved one is, do they know Christ as Savior and Lord? Well, I'm so thankful that many, many times they look me in the eye and say they have trusted Christ since their youth or they have trusted Christ since this time and they are faithfully serving Him. I love to hear that because there's hope. But every once in a while I, I get that downcast look of I, I don't know or I'm not sure or, or certainly not. 
you know, I would love to serve a God who, who does not include the doctrine of hell. There are things in Scripture, and I've shared with you this, with you this before, there are things in Scripture I don't like. And I agree with C.S. Lewis. If we could remove this teaching and this doctrine, I think that that would be fantastic. However, I want to warn you of two things. One, you and I don't have in our power and authority to remove anything that is in the Word of God. Number two, you and I cannot possibly even pretend to put ourselves in the position of all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty, and all-righteous God. For us to ignore or remove the doctrine of hell tells God we know better than you. We're more right and righteous than you. We understand things better than you. Can I warn you that that is the exact sin that Satan himself committed that got him cast out of heaven? Looking at God and saying, I think I can do your job better than you're doing it. This morning, there's danger in ignoring hell, and I want to make sure we do not do that. And so I want to teach clearly what Scripture teaches about hell. I want to share with you what Jesus himself says about hell. I don't want these words to be my words this morning. I want to share with you what Christ wanted you to know. You know, there are are statements that I don't think are qualifiable or provable. It cannot be proven that, that say things like, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about anything else. Well, that's kind of tricky. Because there are so many topics that Jesus spoke on that that overlap. How to tell what he spoke the most on is difficult. But can I tell you this? He spoke more about hell than anybody else in Scripture spoke about hell. I, I know that for a fact. That is objective and can be found. He spoke often about a literal place called Gehenna. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. He spoke about hell being a place of torment. He spoke of a real literal hell that he wanted people to know of. And one of these times is when Jesus is giving an illustration, a parable, and he shares in this parable this truth about not only eternal bliss in heaven, but eternal punishment in hell. Now let's start by reading actually the parable itself. Matthew 13, 36 through 43 explains the parable. So let's go back just a little bit to Matthew 13, verse 24 through 30. This is the parable that Jesus Christ is sharing. He says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then what do you want us to go and and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is just an agricultural story that Jesus is telling, of a man who planted wheat in a field, but an enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. And there was danger in pulling the weeds up too early, 
And so he let the weeds grow alongside of the wheat. Let the, the righteous grow with the wicked. He let the good grow with the bad. And when it came time for a harvest, they pull all the weeds and cast it into the fire and then gather all the wheat and store it in the barns. Most of the people, like most of us here, hear this story and say, great, that's a good agricultural advice, Jesus. Thank you for that. Next time I plant a garden, I'll keep in mind that I don't need to pull seeds up until they've sprouted. I know that I can pull the weeds up at the appropriate time and and gather the fruit. So the the disciples did what you and I possibly would do hearing hearing about this parable. They just ask him, what does that mean? In our passage this morning, Matthew 13, verse 36, the crowds left and went into the house. And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Tell us what that means. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus makes it very clear that at the end of this earth, when he returns, there will be a harvest where he separates those who have trusted him and those who have not. And there is a very clear description of what happens to those who do not trust him. This morning, I want to look at some principles that we can learn from Scripture about what hell is. Maybe fix some misconceptions. Maybe change the way we think about things so that we are prepared to give an answer to people who ask us about this very troubling and very difficult doctrine. We find no joy in hell. Preachers don't preach on hell because they're sadistic. We don't preach on hell because it's something that excites us. As a matter of fact, I spent more time this week asking God to change my sermon for Sunday morning. Lord, can I, can I preach on heaven, please? <laughs> Lord, can I, can I preach on your return and the glory that it will be up in the clouds? And I felt God saying, too many people have ignored this doctrine for too long. Maybe you believe like some other people have believed. Way back, even in the the first and second century, there were those who taught that that hell was more of a a temporary stopping place and that eventually everyone would end up in heaven. Hell was kind of a time to purify us and, and cleanse us and then ultimately everyone ends up in the same place. There's actually a, an author about a decade ago who wrote a book called Love Wins. Uh, the, the author's name, the pastor's name is Rob Bell. And the idea is that in the end, God gets what he wants. And the Bible says he desires everyone to be saved. So eventually, everyone is saved. And he writes that hell is less of a, a place and more of a, a, a figure of speech. We endure hell on earth. But there is no hell in the afterlife. 
There are many who teach that, that not only is there no hell, but there is no heaven, and that at the end of this earth, we just all perish, and we return to the dust. Maybe you've believed one of these false teachings. Everyone goes to heaven. Hell is temporary, or hell doesn't exist. Maybe you've been taught that, or maybe have chosen to believe it. This morning, can we share with Scripture what it teaches about hell and how we are to respond? The first thing that we find very clearly is that hell is really a place. Hell really is a place. I don't mean a figment of imagination. I mean there is a literal fig- or a literal place, not figurative, that, that exists called hell. We know this because of how Jesus taught on hell. Jesus actually didn't use the word hell the way we use the word hell. He, he used the word Gehenna. And this is important for us to realize that hell is a place because Gehenna was a very well-known place. When Jesus would talk about Gehenna, he talked about uh, the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was, was a place just outside of Jerusalem. And in the Valley of Hinnom, it was historically used as a place where where people could go and sacrifice babies to the false god Molech. This literally was a place that Jesus referred to. Just outside the city walls, when he used the word Gehenna, people immediately thought of that valley, that literal location. All through the Old Testament, we hear about this place, Gehenna, often called a Topheth. We read about all the atrocities that took place in this literal place, Gehenna. And that's why we read in Jeremiah 7.31, they've built, uh, they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, Gehenna, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come to my mind. We see that this is a place where people would take their children and sacrifice them. Over the the years in the Old Testament, people would would practice this and and endure this wicked practice, and then then maybe they would clean themselves up and try to do good again, and then they would go back to this valley and sacrifice uh, uh, individuals. And and even Israel was not exempt from this valley uh, of, of Hinnom. We read of an Israelite king, Ahaz, who made his sons and daughters walk through the valley. As an act of worship, he literally made his children be sacrificed in this valley. Now, it doesn't say that he killed them, but instead it says that he put them through the valley as a sacrifice to this false god. The king of Israel himself, who is supposed to be one with God is using this place, Gehenna, as a place of his own child sacrifice. It wasn't till years later that one of his descendants would be on the throne. A king named Josiah. He's my favorite Old Testament king, by the way. This king, Josiah, refused to let this practice continue. And he put a stop to the passing of children through this valley. I believe it was at that time that it began to transition away from a place of sacrifice to a place of of garbage and refuse. Josiah no longer let it be a place of worship to a false god. Instead, he used it, quite honestly, as a dump. Now, to, to keep the stench 
from overwhelming the city of Jerusalem, from not only the previous sacrifices, but but also from now the, the dump, they would constantly have it burning so that they wouldn't have refuse and human remains in the valley. There would be animals who would, who would come through and, and gnaw on the trash and the, the refuse and the garbage. And you could literally hear all of the animals gnawing and gnashing their teeth in Gehenna. You could literally walk through the valley and see what a despicable, horrible place it was. Now, the reason why I bring up Gehenna is because Jesus wanted to make it very clear that this place he was talking about was a real, physical place. He often refers to it by other names, but it seems that he returns to point to this valley as a physical representation of what hell is. And that's why when we read in Matthew chapter 13, he talks about throwing the refuse, throwing those who are apart from him into the fiery furnace. And he says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus makes very clear, this is not some figment of our imagination. Hell really is a place. It exists where physical bodies are thrown, where there is a physical pain. Hell really exists. But secondly, hell really is torment. I I cringe every once in a while when I hear people talk about hell as if there's going to be one great party there. Let's all go hang out together and and we're going to be hellions on earth so that we can earn our way into this vast party of hell. Can I tell you, if there's one thing Jesus wanted us to know about hell is that there is no party. It is really a place of torment. That's why he writes in Matthew chapter 13, verse 42. Again, we read, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He repeats that, by the way, if you look down in verse 50. It's this exact verse. Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, he says, He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Every time we hear a description of hell, it is not one of of inconvenience, but it is one of pain and suffering. And so when we think of hell, we we have to understand this is a, a real place of torment. It is a physical location. It really exists. And it is the worst possible scenario you can imagine. I think when we put these first two truths together, we can get a picture of what it looks like. I I, I hate to paint the picture even deeper, but I can't help but think of of hell on earth now looking a little bit like an abortion clinic. I I can't help but think of the the way they discard human remains. I I can't help but think of a a burning flesh sensation. I can't help but think that if Jesus was using a parable now, he may not call it Gehenna. He may call it Planned Parenthood. I can't help but think that that as we picture hell, the worst thing we can possibly think of does not do justice to what Jesus is describing. Hell is really a place, and it is really a place of, of torment and pain and suffering. 
I think maybe the hardest place to wrap our mind around when we talk about hell is that hell really is eternal and it does not end. To be honest with you, this is the one that I think most people find unfair. Our lives are temporary. Our our lives on earth are temporary. We live on average 70 years. Some of us longer, some of us much shorter. And so we can't wrap our minds around how a finite amount of time and sin on earth warrants an eternal punishment in hell. But Mark chapter 9 tells us exactly that. Where the worm, this is the description of hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It continues forever and ever. Revelation chapter 14, we read verse 10 a minute ago. Verse 11 says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Every time we see a description of hell, it is a physical place, is a place of extreme suffering, is a place that does not ever come to an end. So we start to paint this picture. It's not a sermon I enjoy preaching. And I'm sure it's not a sermon we enjoy listening to. In a moment, we're going to describe or share with you why it's so important we we learn about this truth. But, But first, can we talk just a minute about how unfair it feels that hell is eternal? That, that this suffering and this torment does not end. I, I think that I don't like hell most because of this aspect of it. And the idea of purging and punishment makes a little bit of sense to me. I'm a wicked person. I do sinful things. I can understand if apart from Christ, I would get sent to be punished the number of times I've sinned on this earth, which is a lot. I, I think that my time in hell, apart from Christ, should last a long time. But eternal really bothers me. And I think it bothers a lot of us. I finally understood why the sin of hell is eternal when I started to understand exactly what the wages of sin are and the consequences of sin are. I, I started to understand how God created us, how God planted us, and how we've become. Have you ever had something that was perfect? I mean, in mint condition, whether it's a collectible or maybe it's a, a, a set of, of china. Uh, for me, it was baseball cards growing up. I, I loved I loved getting that nice, neat, mint, perfect card. You would look for the, the card that the edges were perfectly centered, had no creases. It was in that, that nice, plastic, hard plastic case. Sometimes they'd even put it in like this, this glass thing in between to give it extra protection. It couldn't be bent, and you would say the card is in mint and perfect condition. I I understand that you and I are not perfect, but can I tell you that God created you mint? God created you perfect? The problem with sin is not just that it, it affects us in the moment, but it affected our perfection in the perfection of God's creation. And when something goes from perfect to imperfect, it can never return to perfect. I've shared before about a special card I had that was worth quite a bit. My brother, being 10 years younger than I am, got a hold of and bent in half. It broke my heart. The card went from being worth over $100 to being worth nothing. 
Try as I might to straighten that cart out and get the crease out, there was no way of repairing the damage because when something is perfect and it becomes imperfect, it is eternally damaged. There is no fixing it. If you break a lamp, you can glue it back together, but the cracks remain. And so we see the punishment for sin has to be eternal because it took what was perfect and it made it imperfect. There is an eternal consequence to sin and therefore there has to be an eternal punishment for sin. I'm brokenhearted when I think of of this truth of hell being eternal. But I begin to think I'd be more upset if hell was not eternal. I'd be more upset if God bent the rules a little bit. I think I'd be, I'd be more mad at God if hell didn't exist than if it did. Not because I enjoy it, I hate it. But because I have a God who is just and is fair. I, I don't want to serve a God who doesn't do what is right. I don't want to serve a God who looks at sin and sweeps it under the rug. I, I'd love for him to do that for me. But I don't want to serve a God who is is unjust. And so when we start to look at a picture of hell, we start to see a glimpse of who God is. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. And He always does what is right. By the way, did you know that God does not like hell either? That God did not create hell to send people to? And really, that's our last truth about hell that hell really is avoidable. There is not a single person who has ever lived who has to go to hell. We find that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, that Jesus throws out a statement that, that we may miss if we don't stop and think about, but that teaches us who hell was created for. Jesus is telling another parable about sheep and about goats. And the sheep are the ones who trust in God and are are welcomed into heaven. The goats are the ones who have rebelled and refused to trust God and are being sent to this eternal torment. And Jesus throws out this phrase, and see if you catch it, that tells us a little bit about the nature of hell. In Matthew 25, 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, Listen to this. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you ever stop and think about who hell was created for? It wasn't for people. Hell is not created with you in mind. God never intended or wanted any person to ever spend any time in hell whatsoever. Instead, he created hell because of the devil and his fallen angels They needed a place for their punishment. Unfortunately, not only did the devil and his angels fall, but humanity broke God's heart as well when they fell. God was not unprepared. God was not taken by surprise. God had a plan of redemption in place. But God also was not to be unjust and unfair. Therefore, this place that was created not for you, but for the devil himself, now is a place that we all deserve to go to. Matthew 13, our main passage, 
It's the Son of Man will send His angels and they'll gather out His kingdom, all causes of sin and law breakers and, and throw them into the fiery furnace. Jesus wants us to be clear that while hell is not meant for us, certainly there are those sinners and lawbreakers who will be thrown into the fiery furnace. I think what I hate most about hell is that I know that I am a sinner and a lawbreaker. The reason why I don't want to think about hell is because if I'm honest with myself, while hell was not created for me, hell is where I deserve to go. And I think I want to push it aside because I don't want to put myself in the shoes of those who are cast into the fire. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, we understand that we are those sinners and those lawbreakers, that we deserve that physical place of eternal torment. And yet, and yet, this last truth shows God's grace even in hell. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what does it mean to be saved? Now, I don't mean what is the gospel and and I have to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We'll talk about that in a minute, but... The question I get asked, especially from children, is saved from what? What do I need to be saved from? The doctrine of hell helps answer that question. We are saved from the consequences of our sin. And Jesus tells us very clearly in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from everything we talked about in this sermon. Saved from every consequence that comes with our sin. Saved from hell itself. Hell is certainly a place. It's certainly a place of torment. It really is an eternal place. However, hell really is avoidable. It is not God's heart or desire that anyone should perish. It is not God's will that any person ever be sent to hell. There's an article by J.D. Greer about seven things all Christians should know about hell. And I want to read just kind of a a snippet from that, kind of the end of his article here that, that I think helps us to understand God's grace and salvation through the doctrine of hell. So some people see a problem in using hell as a way of coercing people to submit to Christianity. It's as if God is saying, serve me or else. And that seems manipulative. It may surprise you, but God agrees. If people are converted to God simply because they are scared or because God has done some great miraculous sign, they might submit, but it wouldn't change their heart attitude toward God. If you accept Jesus just to get out of hell, then you'd hate being in heaven because only those who love and trust God will enjoy heaven. If you don't love the Father, then living in the Father's house feels like slavery. It would be like forcing you to marry someone you didn't want to marry. The only way you'll enjoy heaven is when you learn to love and trust God. Only an experience of the love of God can rearrange the fundamental structure of your heart to create a love and trust of God. Now listen to this last statement. It's not enough for God to take us out of hell. He must take the hell out of us. God's heart and desire in teaching about hell is not to scare us 
or to cause us in some way to, to want to get out of jail free. Instead, it's to remind us that, that there is a loving God who does not have any desire to see anyone perish. Hell is there to, to remind us that we don't have to go to the place that we deserve. See, the doctrine of hell is not one that we should run from. Instead, it's one we should embrace because it magnifies the love of God and salvation. As we close, there, there is one who we want to be like who has experienced hell. There is one that we would hope to attain to that experienced hell in a way that I hope we never have to. When Jesus Christ is on the cross, being crucified, literally to pay for our sins, he, he takes on all of our guilt, and the Father is forced to turn his back on the Son. And those words that Jesus cries out in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, can really be shown as a sign that he is experiencing hell. He has been abandoned by the Father. This morning, I hope and pray that we will let Jesus take our hell. We will let Jesus take our suffering. We will let Jesus take our torment so that we no longer have to worry about where we may or may not go. Instead, this morning, instead of ignoring hell, can we embrace the salvation that we have that redeems us out of where we deserve and puts us in a right relationship with God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you this morning for, for your teaching about not only what heaven is, but Lord, what we deserve in hell. Lord, let us be sensitive in, in talking about hell at appropriate or inappropriate times, but Lord, let us not be weak and chicken to ignore what hell is. Lord, let each of us examine our hearts and remind ourselves that we are deserving of a, a physical, eternal place of torment. Lord, I, I hate hell as much as you do. So Lord, I pray that, that right now each person would examine their own heart and ask, Lord, do I know you and trust you as Savior to save me from my sins and my punishment and as Lord to show me how you want me to live and guide my life Lord this morning let us not ignore hell but instead rejoice that we don't have to go there let us rejoice that you are a God who saves and is merciful Lord we just pray that each person in here would have a relationship with you so that we can rejoice and worship you for being the God who loves and cares and saves us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.